This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Umar Paganampake Pagan, and I'm speaking today to author Andy Weir. He's got a new book coming out called Artemis, which is a sort of heist thriller that's set on the moon, somewhat different from his insanely successful scientific meditation on being lonely and stranded on Mars. Uh, we'll be speaking about Artemis when the book is out in November, but on this show, I wanted to speak to Andy about the success of his first book, The Martian. I'm Andy Weir, and I'm a writer, and uh, I have two cats. And one of them is a calico, and the other one's black and white. So you started writing the book as a sort of thought experiment, because you know you want to explore this possibility of sending humans into outer space, into a punishing planet. Tell me, tell me how this thought experiment became a best-selling novel, became a blockbuster by one of the greatest directors of all time. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I had to laugh. Uh, I'll answer the question. Um, my cat fell hilariously off the chair right when you were asking that question. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> she just completely lost control. It was hilarious. I wish I'd had. I wish I'd been taping it. Um, all right. Well, uh, originally I was writing The Martian as a serial that I was posting my website. I posted a chapter at a time, uh, about one new chapter every six to eight weeks, and it took me about three years to finish the, the whole book. Once I was done, uh, oh, by the way, I was, I had been writing all sorts of stuff, and this was just one of the things that I was working on. I was also posting short stories and other serials and comics and stuff like that. And so that was just one of the things I was working on. I right. didn't expect it to be anything big. And I was, and I was writing it for a hardcore nerd audience. So I, I didn't think, I, I never thought it would have any mainstream appeal. Anyway, when I was done, I kind of like said, all right, I'm done, on to other things. And I got emails from people saying, like, hey, can you make an e-reader version? Because I don't like reading it in the web page. So I did that. And then I got an email from other people saying, hey, I like that there's an e-reader version, but I don't know how to download a thing from the Internet and put it on my Kindle. Can you just post it to Amazon so I can just get it through their system? So I did that. And you can self-publish. Anyone can self-publish to Amazon. It's easy. But they don't let you give stuff away for free. You have to charge at least a dollar. So I set the price. Or, yeah, charge at least 99 cents. So I set the price to 99 cents and um, said, all right, well, you guys can get it for free from my website, or you can pay 99 cents to have Amazon put it on your Kindle for you. And more people paid the 99 cents than downloaded it for free because people really hate technical hassles. So um, it's, it started getting really good reviews, and it started working its way up the uh, Amazon bestseller list, and eventually it got the attention of uh, the editors at Random House and of a literary agent um, named David Fugate. He approached me and said, like, hey, um, uh, do you need an agent? And I said, yeah. And so he said, well, good, because I think I can probably get you a deal with Random House. And then, you know, within a week, he had me on the phone with Random House, and they were working out the, they, they working out the details of the contract. And then around the same time, Fox came for the film rights because a, a producer at Simon Kinberg Productions really took a deep interest in the book and collaborated with a writer, Drew Goddard, and um, they approached Fox and said, we think this might make a good movie. So Fox came and bought the film rights, or actually bought the film option, which is slightly different, but whatever. And then so the uh, film rights deal and the print deal came together four days apart. It was a very wow. exciting week. 
And then from there, uh, the, the book went on to become a bestseller, and then they decided to greenlight the movie, and they ended up getting like these, this incredible cast. It, it really snowballed because originally they had Drew Goddard, uh, who's a veteran writer and director in Hollywood. He was set to write the screenplay and direct. He wrote a great screenplay, and then he left the project to go work on the Spider-Man, Spider-Man movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, but right around that same time, they also got Matt Damon. It, Matt, Matt Damon was interested in playing the lead. So then they went from having a director and no star to having a star and no director. So they said, well, let's see if we can find a director. And Ridley Scott said, yeah, I'll direct this. And so they're like, oh, really? <laughs> so you end up with Ridley Scott directing and Matt Damon starring, and all of a sudden the studio takes it very, very seriously. And they're willing to throw a bunch of money into it. And they, and they were also able to get really top-tier, top-notch actors and actresses interested in the project because who doesn't want to be in a movie, you know, directed by Ridley Scott starring Matt Damon, right? Yours is yet another wonderful, wonderful story of a novel that the world would have never read if it weren't for the Internet. Right. No, absolutely. You're right. Now, in your, in your book, even more so than in the film, you dive deep into the minutiae of the chemical reactions that turn rocket fuel to water, of how to farm potatoes, on hacking Pathfinder. How did you, how did you go about getting the science so right? Uh, well, I've been a space dork my whole life, so I started off with more than a layman's knowledge, but also um, I just did tons and tons of math and research. And most of the uh, research for me, in fact, almost all of it, was just Google just Googling around. I didn't know anyone in aerospace. I didn't know anyone at NASA or anybody involved in the space industry at all. So I didn't have anybody to talk to about this stuff. I just uh, did a lot of research and did a lot of math. Surely that would have opened you up to a lot of criticism. I, I mean, I can already see it now with the kind of reviews coming in for the film where people are going, ah, the things that they got right and they got wrong in The Martian. Yeah, well, I mean, I bring that on myself, and I, and I, I, have, no, I have no complaints about that at all. I like that people do that. I like that people are starting to subject science fiction to critical analysis. Maybe it'll make more, you know, scientifically accurate sci-fi in the future, because I really like that subgenre. Um, and I brought this on myself by telling everybody, everybody, hey, I made a very scientifically accurate story about Mars. You know, I, I made that claim. So if they're going if, if to say, like, well, really? Okay, well, let's take a look. Well, this part isn't accurate. That part isn't accurate. And that's fine. There, there are places where I, where I was deliberately inaccurate for dramatic purposes, and I don't feel bad about them. I, I, don't, I don't mind the scrutiny, basically. I, I, I invited the scrutiny. So what doesn't work? Which bits of your novel are more science fiction than, say, science potential? Um, well, almost everything in the film, uh, in fact, yeah, every, every piece of technology in the film is either based on, uh, is, ba- is either real, like it exists today, or it's a minor extension of, of technology that exists today. Um, the one thing that's really unrealistic in the book, uh, the most, un- and in the movie, the most unrealistic thing is the sandstorm at the beginning. In reality, Mars's atmosphere is very, very thin. It's about one two hundredth the the density of Earth's atmosphere, and so while they do get 150 kilometer an hour winds on Mars, the the force on the the force that those winds generate is, is extremely gentle because the the air is so thin. So uh, a sandstorm on Mars would have a hard time knocking over a piece of paper. It, it certainly couldn't do the kind of damage that's depicted. So um, and I knew that at the time that I wrote the story. I'd had an alternate beginning in mind for a while where 
the the problems are all caused by they were doing an MAV engine test. The MAV is their vehicle, their ascent rocket uh, that they've used to leave Mars. They're doing an engine test on it, and there's an explosion, and that causes all the problems. Like that wounds Watney, and then they're leaking fuel, so they have to launch right away, and so on. And, I mean, it would have worked. I, I, I came up with a scenario that strands him there and makes everyone think he's dead, and the same as the storm did. But the storm was just cooler, <laughs> and it was just more interesting and, and more compelling and, and more exciting. And it's a man versus nature story, so I wanted nature to get the first punch in, right? So I went ahead and was just wildly inaccurate <laughs> on that on that part. Another thing I kind of hand-waved is uh, the radiation shielding. Now, what I said in the book was that they had they had um, radiation shielding, quote-unquote, that, that could just block radiation and bring it down to Earth nominal. Uh, in reality, that would be, that's a huge issue. I mean, you need like 10 semi- centimeters of water surrounding your vessel in all directions or a full meter of rock. Radiation amelioration is a, is a huge issue for, for interplanetary travel that they haven't solved yet. And I just kind of waved my hands and said they had some material that absorbed it. That is such a magical, wonderful material that I, ca- I can't claim that that's based on any real science. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you never know. In 20 years, that magical Maybe. material may exist. Really pushing it, though. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and this is what I enjoy. And this is what I enjoy about your work and where it stands out from other such thought experiments is that it possesses this incredibly entertaining plot. And right along with the protagonist, who is eminently likable, it's very Jules Verne-esque in execution in oh. that... It's incredibly readable, which must have been quite the balancing act for you making this call between staying true to science fact and taking, well, certain creative licenses with regards to entertainment. Um, a, a bit. I mean, it wasn't really that hard to stay accurate to science in most of the cases. The big problem was explaining everything to the reader, right? And I, there was like, okay, I need the reader to understand these scientific principles before, I can, before the reader understands the problem Watney has and the solution that he implements. And so there was a lot of exposition, a lot of scientific exposition. And so I had to be careful with that because I couldn't go off on tangents. I couldn't wander off and just get excited and geek out because I, I, I didn't want the reader to get bored. So I would just try to explain just in just the absolute minimum information they needed to understand the problem and no more. And I made Watney a smartass so that the way he's explaining it is funny and hopefully entertaining like that, the narrative style. Now talk to me about all the ways Mars can kill me. Well, there are a number of exciting ways that Mars can kill you. First of all, the atmospheric pressure is, is very, very low. Like I said before, it's almost a vacuum. So it's pretty much the same as being out in space. So if you have a depressurization of your habitat or your spacesuit or your rover or whatever, you're going to die. <laughs> so it's, it's really important that you, that you make note of that. It's... Uh, that can kill you just as, just as bad as, as having a hole in your spaceship, just as bad as if they had a hole breach on the ISS. It's very bad. So that's number one. Uh, number two is Mars is extremely cold. It gets down to, like, minus 100 degrees C at night, I think. And um, I think the hottest it gets, though, for the most part, the hottest it gets is zero degrees Celsius. I, I guess there are some places on Mars where, you know, where it, it can get up to about 20 degrees Celsius, which is, it, like, as hot as, it, that's the equivalent of, like, being on Earth and being in Death Valley and having, you know, a temperature of, like, 53 degrees Celsius or something, you know. Yes, Mars is extremely cold. 
Another thing is there's a, it's a little harder to get energy on Mars. If you had a re, if you were going to try to live there or something, if your Mars base had a reactor, that'd be fine. But really, what most designs presume is that you're going to have solar panels to collect solar power. Well, um, Mars is further away from the sun, so there's much less solar energy hitting each square meter on the surface. And also, it has really crappy weather sometimes, and the dust the dust fills up the atmosphere and makes it dark on the surface. So you could, this has been a real problem for our solar-powered probes like Opportunity, that where it's come very, it's come disastrously close to running completely out of power because of dust storms and because of Martian winter and stuff like that. Very, very scary stuff. That's oh, and I'm not, sorry, I'm not done telling you how Mars kills you. Um, the next thing is that it is, it has no magnetosphere. And its atmosphere is very thin, and those two things mean that there's an enormous amount of radiation hitting the surface. Uh, the galaxy creates radiation, just stars create high, fast-moving particles that are whizzing around in all directions, and the sun also creates a lot of radiation. So there's, there's, if you were on Mars for just, uh, I, I forget what the ratio is, but if you, were, if you were on Mars for as long as Watney was, you would absolutely get, like, cancer, lots of it. And we still want to send people there. <laughs> well, you'd need to deal with the radiation problem, that's all. One nice thing about radiation is, is it can be dealt with just with bulk. And when you're on the surface of Mars, you're much less exposed to radiation than you are on the trip to Mars. Because when you're on the surface of Mars, half of the galaxy is blocked by the planet. Right? Everything, everything below the horizon, is you're, you're protected from radiation by the bulk of, of Mars. But everything up in the sky, well, that can hit you. So you make your Mars base, and then you grind up uh, grind up rocks just so you can have a meter of sand between you and the outside, and then you're probably in pretty good shape. Actually, this is what I've always been curious about. How important was it for your story to be centered around a NASA mission? And I ask because it was very important in my enjoyment of it, in that somehow it had to be this national effort and not just the pipe dream of some Tony Stark wannabe. Well, first off, if it, if it was a private expedition, it would be much less believable. Like, portraying a manned Mars mission as being a large government-run project from, like, the wealthiest nation on Earth, that seems plausible. But if it's just some crazy rich guy, you're like, no, even the craziest, richest guy doesn't have enough money to do that. <laughs> right? So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is, and I'll admit, I freely admit I did this on purpose, is Making it, it, I made the Ares missions seem and feel like the Apollo missions. So it really harkens people back. It takes people back to that era of the lunar missions and, and this excitement of, of travel. And it, it has that same feel. There's like, oh, there's the mission controllers and there's people talking to Houston and all that stuff. In reality, I think the first manned mission to Mars will be a large international effort, more like the International Space Station, which is... You know, half the time it's given its marching orders from Moscow, and the other half of the time it's in Houston. And lots of countries, and they all need to agree, and there's committees and stuff. It's not just the NASA show. But I didn't want to complicate the plot with all of that stuff because that was largely irrelevant. I, I just wanted, you know, kind of heroic scientists on the ground. So I kept it simple, and I said, like, all right, this is NASA. And I think that worked really well. I think the idea of channeling the Apollo missions, I mean, I still get, I still get goosebumps every time I read or see footage from the Apollo missions. I know. And, and I can't tell Did you how you many that? times oh. I've reread Tom Wolfe. 
there was a time when we seemed to champion these men and women of intellect and science. I mean, there was, right? It's not just some misplaced sense of nostalgia on my part. Well, what people really, in the 60s, the real, what, what people considered the real heroes were the astronauts. Even, even in the height of the Apollo era, they, they, I mean, they, they, they knew that NASA was full of smart people, but what everyone was interested in were the astronauts. Nowadays, we're starting to really uh, respect the scientists and the engineers. And it's like um, people know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is, right? People know who he is. People know who Brian Cox is. People know who um, Bill Nye is. And Carl Sagan, yeah. And Carl Sagan. People know who these people are. Can you, uh, you know, how many people on ISS can you name right now? One, yeah. So you probably know Scott Kelly, right? So you know Scott Kelly's up there. That's about it. So that really shows a shift in how society views, like, space and the space program and, and just a, a shift in how society views science. People are, like, sh- showing much more interest in scientists and they're, and they're no longer considering space travel to be astronauts as the heroes and everybody else is, like, minor support. <laughs> From my reading of your book, NASA's recent discovery of evidence of water flowing on Mars doesn't necessarily seem to change what needs experience, does it? No, it doesn't, because those uh, RSLs, recurring slope linear, are few and far between. There aren't many of them. So if, if I'd known about them when I wrote the book, I would, have, I would have mentioned them, but I would have said, like, oh, the nearest one, the nearest one of them is very far away, too far away for him to get to reasonably. I could have said that. Also, RSLs show up on slopes. They've got slope right in the name. And so you need a large elevation change. They show up on the edges of hills and mountains and craters and stuff. And Acidelia planitia is very flat. So I could have uh, gotten away with I could have gotten away with saying those things are far away. A much bigger problem <laughs> for me was a few years ago when Curiosity after I'd finished the book, but when Curiosity sampled the soil on Mars and found that it had an enormous amount of water trapped in the soil in the form of ice. So this is like not the, not the recent announcement of liquid flowing water, but the much long ago announcement that there's a huge amount of ice in the soil. And every cubic meter of Martian soil has about 35 liters of water in it in the form of ice. And so it's just this huge, this huge amount of water. So that would, be, that would have been a much bigger challenge for me to, to, to write around. I mean, because Mark could have just gotten dirt from outside and heated it up to get the water out. So what I would say instead, what I would say to that is, well, Mars doesn't have a single climate, just like Earth doesn't, right? We have yeah. the Sahara, we have the Amazon rainforest. So I, I could just say, well, Acidelia planitia is a desert. There's just not that much water in the soil there. There's a bunch in Gale Crater where Curiosity sampled, but there's really not much at all in Acidelia. And no one can prove me wrong until you send a probe. <laughs> So, Andy, we've had this unending fascination with Mars, right? From H.G. Wells, Ray uh-huh. Bradbury, Kim Stanley Robinson to the Martian. And, and why do you suppose we're so fascinated with the Red Planet? Well, um, I think that we have had a deep interest in Mars ever since we went to the moon. <laughs> because Mars is the next, the next frontier, right? It's the next place that, that we haven't been. And when, when nature tells us, you can't go here, it's too hard, we tend to say, oh, yeah? <laughs> So we really want to go there for the same reason a mountain climber wants to get to the top of a mountain that no one's been to. We just want to, we just, we just want to go. <laughs> also, it's, it's fascinating. It's interesting. It's like Earth's opposite, right? 
Earth is teeming with water and life. Mars is a very dry, comparatively kind of desert wasteland. Uh, Earth is bright blue. Mars is bright red. You know, it's just, it, it's like, it's like the opposite world. And it's, it is the planet, it, it's the planet that is easiest for us to get to. It's not the closest. Venus is closer, but Venus is hauling ass around the sun. So it actually takes more fuel to get to Venus than it does to get to Mars because Venus is going so fast you have to match its velocity. Also, from a scientific point of view, Mars is the best place in our... Well, many would argue with me on this, but my opinion, Mars is the best place for us to colonize because um, it is the second easiest body to get to after the Moon. But unlike the Moon, Mars has everything you need for life to uh, flourish and grow. So if you, you, you could actually, like, if you had enough of a human population on Mars and enough industry and stuff set up, then they could, with no further assistance from Earth, grow their colony and, uh, indefinitely because of the uh, supplies that are available on the planet. You need four things, mainly. You need four very significant things for life to be able to, to grow and to, to, you know, not just sustain itself but actually expand. You need carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. They're called chun. And um, those, those four things are the main things you need in large quantities. Um, Mars's atmosphere is, is 95% carbon dioxide. So there's your carbon and your oxygen. Mars has tons and tons of water just everywhere, all over the soil. So there's your, uh, there's your hydrogen and, by the way, more oxygen. And Mars's atmosphere is 2% nitrogen, which doesn't sound like much, but is plenty. <laughs> and... Even if, that, even if the billions and billions and tons of nitrogen in Mars's atmosphere is inconvenient for you to get at, then it turns out the soil actually has nitrates in it already. So you've got, you've got literally everything you need to just keep expanding and expanding. We, we live in a world where the political rhetoric, be it over the state of our planet or the importance of space exploration, seems rooted in a failure to understand the importance of science and the role it plays in our lives. Now, your book, and I suppose even more so with the blockbuster Hollywood movie, has the potential to bring this discourse to the fore. And and boy, do we need this conversation. Uh-huh. Well, um, again, I didn't, uh, I didn't have any objective when I was writing the book. I wasn't attempting to convince people of anything or change anyone's mind on anything. It was just a story that I was writing, and I, I just want to entertain people. But if it has the effect of uh, bringing science to the, into the public eye and making people have more respect for um, you know, science and scientific advancements, then, then, I'm, then I'm very happy. I've been speaking to Andy Weir. You can find his brilliant novel, The Martian, in all good bookstores. I cannot recommend it highly enough. His new book will be out in stores in early November. It's called Artemis, and we'll be definitely having Andy back on the show to talk about that. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.